Under the Cold War, the United States has been the world's dominant superpower. But in the decades since the collapse of the Soviet Union, tonight's guest argues that American leadership has not solidified a strategic and comprehensive national security policy. While China has clearly laid out its aggressively expansionist ambitions and Russia steadily capitalizes on newfound influence, has the US developed its own vision for the future? Good evening and welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. I'm Liz Brailsford, President and CEO of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. We're thrilled to welcome a good friend of our council, Michael O'Hanlon, here to discuss his book, The Art of War in an Age of Peace, U.S. Grand Strategy and Resolute Restraint. I'd like to thank Michael for agreeing to speak to our membership in light of the change of travel schedule. You can order your copies of Michael's book, The Art of War in an Age of Peace, through our local bookstore partner in Terabang Books. Our audience receives a 10% discount through October 31, so don't forget to buy that, and it applies to any of the books in your cart uh, using our code DFWWORLD. As we continue to safely operate programs in person, we'll be taking every step within our capacity to protect the community. For the most up-to-date information on our health and safety practices and our most recent event lineup, head to our website at dfwworld.org. Michael O'Hanlon is a Senior Fellow and Director of Research in Foreign Policy at the Brookings Institution, where he specializes in U.S. defense strategy, the use of military force, and American national security policy. He directs the Center on Security Strategy and Technology, as well as the Defense Industrial Base Working Group. Dr. O'Hanlon has been named one of the most influ influential people in national security and defense by Washingtonian Magazine. His vast experience includes roles with the CIA, the Congressional Budget Office, and the Peace Corps in the DRC, among others. He earned his bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees from all, uh, all from Princeton University rather, and at one point worked with a group of Princeton physicists to try to disprove Einstein's theory of relativity, relativity, alas, unsuccessfully. But it's no matter as he joins us tonight to discuss grand strategy, not physics. Moderating our conversation this evening is another good friend of the council, Ray Termini. Ray worked as an international real estate attorney until his retirement and is a graduate of SMU's Dedman School of Law. Ray has been a council member for about 15 years now and serves as a figurehead for the International Perspectives Series, an annual series held in partnership with the American Jewish Committee of Dallas, founded by his friend and Michael's Mel Cusin. We are grateful for Ray for his years of dedication to our mission. Gentlemen, I am so pleased you're both with us this evening. Thanks very much again for joining us. And I know we're in for a treat for this conversation. Ray, I will hand it over to you and thanks again. Thank you, Liz. Good evening. Michael, your new book, The Art of War in an Age of Peace, has been described as a masterful examination of past American grand strategy and foreign policies by General David Petraeus, and as an exceptional, vividly written guide to American strategy in the post-pandemic world 
by former Deputy Secretary of State William Burns. It is certainly both. Before I ask you to take us through your book in more detail, let's begin with the title, which combines the concept of the art of war and the age of peace. What did you mean by the title? Well, thank you, Ray, and hi, everyone. It's really a privilege to be part of this conversation tonight, and thank you for the warm welcome from Dallas, which I can feel more than a thousand miles away, even if I'm still in my home in a basement-dwelling Washington football team territory uh, tonight. So uh, it's great to be with you nonetheless. And really, of course, what I try to do, Ray, as you, as you hinted with the title, is to create some tension, almost an oxymoron. First of all, there aren't too many people who would call this an age of peace because all you have to do is open up the newspaper and usually international news is dominated by some conflict. That's pretty much been true my whole life, but it's certainly still true. However, it's an age of peace in the sense that if we go back to at least 1953 when the Korean War ended, there have been no wars between and among great powers since then. And by great power, I'm defining that to be, you know, you can be a little flexible in your definition. There's no one rule of thumb that political scientists use, but certainly uh, the nuclear armed permanent members of the Security Council, China, Russia, United States, Britain, France, but also other large industrial powers. We really haven't had that kind of war. We haven't had World War III or even the kind of wars that Europe used to constantly engage in for centuries prior to the world wars, where you would often have at least a couple of the major entities of the day duking it out someplace um, in Europe or around the world. And so it's an age of peace if we look at Earth from a high altitude, you know, from out at the moon or Mars, and we look down and, and we see no armies crossing borders trying to conquer each other. And when there have been exceptions to that uh, in the post-1953 or post-1945 world, uh, generally speaking, there's been some kind of a fairly rapid resolution. And I'd like to always brag on President George H.W. Bush, even though I realize in Dallas, uh, George W. Bush is your neighbor, uh, and they're both great Americans. But George H.W. Bush, of course, was the one who decided that when Iraq invaded Kuwait in 1990, we would not let that stand because it essentially violated the notion of great power peace. And even though Iraq and Kuwait were not great powers, nonetheless, this idea of blatant cross-border aggression or warfare was something Bush wasn't prepared to tolerate. And yes, there are plenty of civil wars around the world. And yes, there is plenty of strife, plenty of crime, and regrettably, a fair amount of terrorism. But it's still a peaceful period if we think about preventing war between one great power and another. And that's pretty important because that's allowed us to develop this global economic system and this global society that have produced by far and away the most prosperous and most democratic period in world history, even though democracies struggled for the last 10 to 15 years and taken a few hits here and there. And even though prosperity has struggled, especially in the last two years during COVID. Uh, nonetheless, as one of my colleagues at Brookings calculated, the world now has roughly half its population living at a middle-class or better standard of living. And you know, it requires some, some sophistication to reach that kind of a calculation because you have to go into each and every country and look at what's a basket of goods cost that we would associate with middle-class life 
basic healthcare, basic education, roof over your head, decent amount of food, prospects for your kids. Uh, you know, but if you try to apply that standard and you look around the world for the first time ever, we've got half of humanity reaching that level of well-being. And that's because of great power peace. So that's what I mean by the title. But it's, uh, you know, we better not forget the art of war because this peace is fragile. And I think everyone knows that, you know, and as Liz mentioned in her introduction, we've got rivals out there like China and Russia that have not been completely peaceful. Russia in particular, you know, has taken a piece of Ukraine and stoked up violence in another province in Ukraine. So that's a partial, uh, you know, contradiction to the overall trend that I've noted. But nonetheless, um, what we, I think we can agree is that American military power and alliances and the willingness to use force in defense of core interests, like the territorial integrity of our key allies, that's been pretty important for keeping the peace. And if we were to pull back from that, we might put the peace at risk. So I don't want to claim that this more peaceful era of world history is somehow self-sustaining. I think it's very fragile and it requires Americans and American allies to stay good at the art of war. So we can get into the subtitle if you want later on, but maybe I'll leave it at that for now. But again, it's this, it's this tension that we better, we should bear in mind, yes, there are a lot of dangers, but we also don't wanna overreact to them because we're in a pretty strong strategic position overall with more allies than anybody ever has ever had in world history and more economic and military wealth and resources essentially within this Western community of nations than any previous period has witnessed. Michael, thank you. Could you please take us through your arguments that the U.S. needs to adopt a strategy of resolute restraint in meeting our security threats? What do you mean by resolute restraint? So what I mean by resolute restraint, we have to be resolute in defense of our own country, in defense of the main populated areas and territories of our treaty allies, in defense of the sea lanes and other global commons that are crucial to trade and globalization. And I think also in defense of safety, especially against nuclear weapons proliferation. If we saw a nuclear weapon getting smuggled someplace from one country to another, we'd have to take that pretty seriously as a threat. Those are the areas where we have to be tough and resolute, but we need to be a little bit more judicious in other ways. And there are a number of examples in the book and uh, that I'll get to here in a second, where I think we need to either not further commit ourselves to military obligations or in places where we may have them already to be a little bit calm and restrained in how we might apply national power. So let me just give two examples and I'll just do it really quickly and we can come back to the examples or others in more detail later. As many people on this call will know, the so-called North Atlantic Treaty Organization or NATO now has 30 members, three zero which is almost twice the number we had at the end of the Cold War. And the Cold War was successfully concluded in 1989. So the threat against which NATO had been built back in 1949 went away. But we decided to keep NATO as an instrument of promoting stability and democracy in Europe. And I think that was a good idea. Then we decided to expand it into a lot of the former Warsaw Pact and former Soviet space. I think that was a little more fraught. But what, you know, what is, we can't easily reverse. And so now we have 30 members. 
And we have, to some large extent, worsened our relationship with Russia by bringing in those countries that Russia either used to dominate in the Warsaw Pact or used to dominate in the Soviet Union. Romania, Bulgaria, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, the list goes on. I'm not suggesting that we should give Vladimir Putin the right to have a sphere of influence or to dominate his neighbors. But I do think that we need to recognize that if you keep pushing NATO further and further east into the heartland of you know, what used to be the Soviet Union, that we are asking for trouble in the sense that a, a negative Russian reaction is guaranteed and will worsen US-Russia relations and will encourage Vladimir Putin to look for more opportunities to poke back at us with some real dangers potentially and some possibility of the threat of US-Russia war if things get out of control. So I do not wanna bring Ukraine and Georgia into NATO. I apologize to any Ukrainians and Georgians who are on the call, uh, but I think we have better ways to help you if you are indeed on the call, because ever since 2008, when George W. Bush, the son, uh, and Condi Rice, his secretary of state, and other NATO members promised Ukraine and Georgia that someday they will be allowed into the alliance. What we've essentially done, sort of paint a bullseye on the back of Ukraine and Georgia, because Vladimir Putin now wants to do what he thinks he must to keep them out of NATO by stoking unrest and, and instability. And uh, you know, by mucking around in those countries' own territories, which he should certainly not be doing. But nonetheless, that is essentially a prescription for keeping them out of NATO because we don't bring into NATO countries that have unresolved territorial disputes with their neighbors, even if it's not their own fault. So what I'm getting at is I think we need to think more creatively about how to enhance the well-being of Ukraine and Georgia and any other countries that are right next to Russia that might want to someday consider being asked to, to join uh, or being invited to join NATO. I don't think the alliance is the right way to enhance their security. I certainly don't think it's the right way to enhance ours. Because again, when we built up NATO in the first place, it was to keep the most crucial strategic, economic, and military powers in the world from falling under Soviet sway. It was not to reach deep into the heartland of Eurasia and use a military promise of sending American sons and daughters to go fight and potentially die in defense of the territory of that faraway country, as if it were our own territory. That was not the idea of NATO. And it generally should not be the idea behind our military alliances, in my opinion. We should, we should use other tools of foreign policy to promote human rights and democracy. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher, at leeb at dbu.edu. And prosperity. But we should only promise to send our own sons and daughters abroad to fight and die if necessary to defend somebody else's territory when that's a really strategically crucial country that's essentially you know, paramount in importance for our own security. Otherwise, we should show some restraint and that's where the resolute restraint applies. Well, Michael, 
I understand that, but what is the solution for small countries like the Ukraine and Georgia when they're faced with Russian aggression? Well, I'll be a little provocative here. It would be easier to do this if we were in person and I could read the body language of people listening because maybe I'm going <laughs> to shock some people with my first answer, but I'm going to take a chance at being a little provocative anyway. My first answer would be that may not be a problem for American defense policy. Not every country on earth matters to us equally in terms of our own national security. Now, yes, at a humanitarian level, I believe, and I'm sure many others agree on the call, conservatives and liberals alike agree, we should care about human rights around the world. We should care about our fellow men and women. You know, we should apply the golden rule. But promising to send your own military to defend somebody else's territory, that's an unusual thing. It's not a normal thing. It's not a, a normal thing in international relations and it's a fairly modern concoction. It's worked pretty well to prevent World War III. So I support it in the right places, but I don't think we should get used to thinking of it as just you know, one more tool in our toolkit. It is a sacred solemn vow that is fraught with potential for conflict, if, you know, including for our own uh, troops being put in harm's way. If, uh, if, if war breaks out in those places. So my first answer, Ray, I don't wanna say I don't care, but I do wanna say I care less than I care about American security or English or German or Japanese or Korean security. I just don't think that we can afford to keep expanding our obligations, especially when you're talking about countries that are right next to Russia and five, 7,000 miles away from us. So that's part of the answer. But I also think that there is you know, a potential uh, concept here that may be more appealing to Vladimir Putin and to us than anything that's on the table right now, which is essentially some kind of permanent non-alignment for countries mm -hmm. like Russia, or excuse me, like Ukraine and Georgia. And the basic idea would be that if Russia will agree to verifiably pull its forces out of you know, Eastern Ukraine, let's not bring Crimea into this right now because that part could be just too hard to solve. But places where Russia is actively supporting separatists in the so-called Donbass region of Eastern Ukraine, if Russia will allow an international monitoring group to verify that it's pulled its forces out and now there's a ceasefire that holds and Ukraine can provide a little more autonomy for that region, and then we can promise not to bring Ukraine into NATO and Putin promises not to attack Ukraine, then that deal, which by the way, doesn't require a thousand page treaty because each of the pieces is pretty simple, can then lead to the lifting of many of the sanctions we placed on Russia since its 2014 aggression against Ukraine. So for Putin, he can go back to his own people not that I'm trying to help Putin, but I have to think of, you know, would the deal be appealing sure. to him? And um, he can go back to his own people and say, I just delivered two big things. I'm the first Russian leader in centuries to prevent any new military threat emerging from the West. No more Napoleons, no more Hitlers, no more whoever. We've always gotten attacked from the West. And now I figured out a way to stop NATO from continuing to encroach on our territory. And I think that's a pretty appealing thing. Second, the sanctions that have done so much to suppress Russian economic growth for the last decade. 
uh, would be lifted. Now, Vladimir Putin came to power around 1999, 2000, and then became popular in Russia for the next eight years in his first stint as president, largely by restoring some degree of stability and even prosperity, or at least a you know, decent standard of living after the free fall that Russia went through with the end of the Cold War, the demise of the Soviet Union, the end of communism, so-called shock therapy, where we tried to sort of get them to be a capitalistic country within a couple of years, basically doing fire sales to the richest oligarch who could snap up a state industry. It was not a good idea on our part. It didn't produce any success in Russia. And Putin came to power uh, promising to stabilize things, and he did. And Russia had a very good first eight years of the 21st century. And that's part of why Putin was popular. But now in his second stint as president, Russia's economy has not been growing fast. And he's had to turn towards suppressing dissent, poisoning critics, stoking conflict with the West, you know, and risking his own legacy because he has not been able to deliver Russian prosperity. He has delivered more Russian relevance on the global stage. And he's had some military success in Crimea, in Syria, in a few other places. But his whole legacy is now in peril because he hasn't figured out a way to help Russia grow economically. So by lifting sanctions, he would be able to perhaps get Russia back on the path towards growth. You know, anything that we do to help Vladimir Putin, I'm gonna to have to hold my nose to agree to it or to propose it, but I would still rather take this issue of a potential source of US-Russia conflict off the table. We have 5,000 nuclear weapons. Russia has 5,000 nuclear weapons. I don't want the potential for small crises in remote parts of Europe to blow up into US-Russia war. And I still think there's a chance that that could happen if we leave things the way they are today. Well, I think that's really a fascinating example of restraint. Uh, it really is. It gets us to think. But let me ask you also, let's move it over to China for a bit. What, are, what use of restraint would you uh, apply with respect to, for example, the Belt and Road Initiative or China's actions in the South China Sea or even the threat to Taiwan? Yeah, well, first of all, you need both words, resoluteness and restraint for that problem set that you just put on the table, Ray, because let's take the South China Sea, which as many people will know, uh, is one of the most important maritime thoroughfares in the world. And I think something in the vicinity of a quarter to a third of all world shipping goes through the South China Sea. And the Chinese have sometimes claimed that they essentially own it, even though it's blue water, salt water, and, uh, and they have this so-called nine dash line that they've claimed you know, encompasses most of it where they should have control. They wanna control the South China Sea more than we wanna control the Caribbean or the Gulf of Mexico for that matter even though historically we have been somewhat interventionist in Central America, to put it mildly, uh, we haven't really gone out and said to anybody, keep your ships out of you know, salt water near our coast. We don't like it when they get too close militarily, but we, we don't make that sort of a claim. China did make that claim. And we showed resoluteness. We sent, and we still send, aircraft carriers and other Navy ships through in places where China has told us we shouldn't. That's an example of resoluteness that's necessary because the sea lanes are crucial to the functioning of the global economy. 
and to the sovereignty and safety of many other countries. So we should not kowtow to the Chinese on that. A little more complicated problem is what, how about those artificial islands that they built? And then President Xi came to Washington in 2015 and he promised to President Obama that he would not militarize them. And then in the next four years, they militarized them, put up airfields and uh, surface to air missile defenses and military runways and ports. And so now they've got, you know, about a half dozen seven islands that didn't exist before and were not fortified before. But I do not think we should have tried to destroy those islands, for example, or quarantine them, blockade them, because international law is a little bit ambiguous about how to handle that kind of a case. We're not even a party to the law of the sea convention that would give us some legal standing to oppose it. And moreover, nobody died in the course of the Chinese building those artificial islands. It's, it's sort of a flexing of great power muscle, but it is um, not an act of outright belligerence. And so on that one, we may wanna think about building our own additional bases in the region as a counter. And we also basically say to the Chinese, if you keep doing more of this, we'll keep doing more of this. But I don't think we need to shoot at them or even necessarily sanction them over that kind of a policy. And we keep going down the list of the various concerns and scenarios that you mentioned. Uh, I'll mention one more before I get to Taiwan. Taiwan's by far the hardest and most dangerous and delicate. I think we, many of us would agree on that. But another example would be the Senkaku Islands, which as some of you will know, are in the East China Sea. They're claimed by both China and Japan. They're uninhabited. There are eight of them. They have a combined uh, surface area of about five square miles. They're sort of pretty. Uh, I think I have a picture of one here. Uh, this was my 2019 book. That's one of the Senkaku <laughs> Islands. But as you can see, you couldn't even really sneak a golf course onto that. I mean, it's just, no. it's unusable land for the most part. And, and yet uh, <laughs> there's a problem here because the Chinese and Japanese both claim it or claim all of them. We do not have an official US government position on whose islands they rightfully should be. We actually are agnostic on that. However, we also recognize that Japan currently administers them. Although I'm still not really sure what it means to administer islands where no one lives and nothing happens. But technically the Japanese administer them, which means that by the terms of the US-Japan Mutual Security Treaty, we would be obliged to come to Japan's aid if those islands were under threat. So yeah, if, if you are sitting at home having a cocktail, waiting for the uh, you know, baseball game to start, just tuning in here for a minute, yes, you heard me right. We might have to go fight China over those islands that you can now see on your screen. <laughs> that really is the logic or the illogic of how we've tortured ourselves into a knot here. And it's a bipartisan decision. It's been policy for a long time. Just President Obama was the first president to publicly himself say that we would feel committed to those islands. So what happens if we wake up one day and the Chinese have put 50, uh, you know, 50 soldiers ashore on one of those? You know, maybe they're gonna make up some excuse like our boat broke, you know, a Gilligan's Island uh, excuse or scenario. Are we really gonna start shooting at those 50 soldiers and killing them in order to liberate <laughs> the island from hostile Chinese occupation? Well, according to US national security strategy today, the answer is we might. 
And I think at a declaratory level, we probably want to keep the Chinese guessing. We don't want to give them an open invitation to just take these islands without penalty. But at a practical level, if the Chinese did show up on one or two of these, I don't want our first response to be military and certainly not lethal. I think we should be very hesitant to draw first blood in a superpower war. So that's one of my principles, one of my slogans. Don't draw first blood in a superpower war unless you really have to, unless, you know, uh, unless your own cities are at risk. And uh, so this is an example of where we need some degree of resoluteness to punish the Chinese, but maybe in an economic way. And, maybe you, and then maybe the US and Japan put our own troops ashore on the other seven Senkaku Islands so the Chinese can't do anything further. And then we try to negotiate an off-ramp. And we punish them economically until we get there, even if it also hurts us. You know, I mean, sanctions are not cost-free, but they uh, are generally preferable to great power war. So that's how I would think about being both resolute, but also restrained. You have to have some price the Chinese pay for that unacceptable action. Exactly. It should not in the first instance be about war. Taiwan is easily the most difficult though of all the questions you just put on the table. So I don't know if you want me to go into that right now uh, and, or if you want me to take a breath while you uh, <laughs> hone in on that one more yourself. Well, I'll ask you a question we got from the audience. Should we be concerned about the actual composition of U.S. military assets in that part of the world? And how does the U.S. Navy stack up to the Chinese Navy? Well, in the abstract, if we could fight the Chinese Navy in neutral waters, equally far away from both countries, we're still way better. We have, you know, depending on how you count, uh, we have 10 large deck aircraft carriers and probably 11 smaller deck aircraft carriers, which are Marine Corps wielding uh, vessels. The Chinese have two aircraft carriers. We have 50 some nuclear powered attack submarines. They've got 40 some pretty good diesel powered attack submarines and just a few nuclear powered ones. You know, and the list goes on. We've got a global command and control system. We have troops that have been hardened by combat in the you know, Middle East for a couple of decades. They haven't fought anybody since 1979. We just have a lot of strengths and we have a lot of allies. But of course, especially with Taiwan, the conflict would not be in neutral waters. It would be very close to China and very far from our own territory. And so as China has modernized, this has become a much more complex military scenario. And uh, I spent a lot of time thinking and talking about this with various other specialists in Washington. There's a, a guy named Chris Brose, who was former staff to Senator John McCain, who wrote an excellent book last year called The Kill Chain. There's a new book out by uh, another, by a guy who helped Secretary Mattis write the national defense strategy. His name is Bridge Colby, and he's got a book called The Strategy of Denial. Uh, there's a guy named Dave Ackmanik, who's been in and out of Democratic president uh, or Pentagons for many years, and who's done a lot of great work on this at RAND. And one thing we all agree on, regardless of party, regardless of past service and when it was, is that the Chinese are a lot better today at being able to threaten aircraft carriers, other ships, land bases that are fixed and hard to defend, big assets that are relatively difficult to move. And we do not have good enough missile defense to deal with a saturation attack by Chinese ballistic or cruise missiles against those kinds of assets. 
We can try to blind the Chinese by jamming their satellite links and things like that. They would do the same to us if they could, if we wound up in a war. Uh, and so maybe some of our aircraft carriers escape detection because they're moving and the, you know, the, the uh, observation and communication satellites are jammed. But for the most part, you're going to start seeing a lot of stuff getting hit on and near Taiwan by missile strikes, by submarine attack, uh, many other things. And so this scenario has gotten very difficult. Our historical ability to come and defend Taiwan, whatever the threat, is no longer nearly as rock solid. And I don't believe we can get that back. You know, we're spending 750 billion a year on our military. The Chinese only spend one third that much on theirs, but they only have to worry about the Western Pacific. They don't have major security problems in most other parts of their territory, and they don't have as many global responsibilities as we do. So um, I'm, I'm afraid that with the combination of a wealthier China and trends in technology that facilitate precision strike, that we're gonna have a hard time defending Taiwan the way we might have. For example, if China decides to try to blockade Taiwan and shut mm -hmm. down the economy. That's the scenario I worry about more than invasion. If the Chinese try to invade, they're putting a lot of big ships with, full of troops and equipment in very visible places where they can be shot at. And I don't know that the Chinese really wanna run that risk, but a blockade is different. You can do it, you can sort of treat it like a rheostat, you can turn it up, you can turn it down. Your real target is more the Taiwan economy rather than the Taiwan people. So you don't have to kill a lot of people to implement this, but you can drive you know, the Taiwan economy, which depends on trade for two thirds of GDP. You can really drive it into the toilet if you carry out this strategy for long. And our old method of dealing with that would have been to sail in a bunch of ships, put a lot more aircraft on Okinawa and, and just sort of, you know, create a huge uh, web of anti-submarine and anti-ship and anti-air capability to essentially create a safe zone around Taiwan. I don't think we can do that with the same kind of confidence as before. So in the Taiwan case, I think we need more creative asymmetric strategies that might, for example, involve our trying to uh, sink or disable ships in the Indian Ocean headed for China with much of the oil that China needs to have its own economy work, or otherwise use military force to reinforce economic warfare, and then look for an off-ramp uh, from the crisis diplomatically. You know, I think we're going to have to forego the idea of an outright military victory in this kind of a scenario. Well, thank you, Michael. Uh, how, how does the concept of American exceptionalism affect the concept of resolute restraint? Yeah, I love this uh, concept uh, in this debate because I have to tell you, um, for the longest time, this phrase American exceptionalism bothered me because with apologies to my neoconservative friends, whether they're in Texas or in Washington, uh, it sounded a little arrogant for a country that, however great our country may be, makes a lot of mistakes too. And it also seemed like, you know, even if we feel like we're exceptional, maybe we should be more quiet in how we say that rather than going around, you know, like some brash New Yorker and, uh, and, and pounding our chest and bragging to the world. And so I struggle with the concept because the way it was often used, it implied that there's just something better about us because we're America. And then I started reading more carefully my colleague, Bob Kagan, who by the way, is a conservative and his only government service was in the Reagan administration. And some people think he's a neoconservative, 
but I don't really think he is because he doesn't have quite that same arrogance about the United States. But he does say, and I think he's right, there's American exceptionalism in the following way. First of all, look at our location. We are basically safe from traditional attack, but we're close enough to Europe and Asia that we can still get involved in stabilizing those regions or in resolving their fights when they can't do it themselves. There's no other country that has that set of assets geographically. Also, we're big enough that even though we're not the most populous country on earth, we're number three, of course, that we still have the world's biggest economy, at least as measured by traditional metrics. China will compete with us and maybe overtake us, but you combine our own economy with that of our close partners and allies in the European Union and Britain and Japan and Korea, and China's never gonna catch up to that aggregate group. And, uh, and to the extent that India sides more with us in the future, because they agree with our democracy and they like the fact that we're far enough away that we're usually not too much in their business, that this gives us again, some natural advantages. So our size and our geography. Two more points. One, we are ethnically and demographically diverse. And obviously a lot of our history has been about dealing with that and it's not always been pretty. And it's sometimes a source of weakness, our racial problems, our other tensions within society. But what it also means is we do not have a national narrative that says just because, you know, I'm a white guy with blue eyes or, you know, I've got this or that uh, gene mix or ethnic background that therefore uh, I'm special. But some other countries on earth, maybe even most countries, most other great powers do have a partly ethnically and culturally based notion of their own central and unique role. And with you know, I'm not trying to say Chinese are racist, but they are very proud of being Chinese. And they see their country as the middle kingdom, sort of God's first choice among equals. Sometimes Americans talk like we feel like that's what, you know, we're God's first choice among equals. But, but for the Chinese, it's, it's interwoven with this fact that they have a common ethnicity, language, and culture, and history. We don't. We are, what, what brings us together is we all live here. We all welcome the opportunity that America provides. And we have a declaration of independence and a constitution that protect the individual. So that's unusual. It doesn't mean we always meet the standards of the declaration and the constitution, but we have that as the one thing that really brings us together and defines us as a nation. So we are unique or exceptional because of our geography, our size, our melting pot demographics, and our constitution. And that means that we are, I'm not trying to say we're therefore superior. I'm almost trying to avoid that. I'm just trying to say we're, we're unique and nobody else can play the role in sort of backstopping the international order because nobody else has those characteristics. So that's what American exceptionalism means to me. You don't have to think that the United States usually gets it right in its decision-making mm-hmm. to believe that our role in the international order is crucial and irreplaceable. So that's what I think of when I think of American exceptionalism. Well, let's move on to the threats facing the the U.S. In your book, you lay out a new four plus one framework with respect to threats facing the U.S. Could you please explain what the original four point one framework is and how the different framework uh, that you have uh, said should be considered has been uh, how that works? Thank you. Yeah. So those of you who, and I know 
the Dallas area has some of the best defense industry in the world and a lot of people who are very, very important in our national security. And so uh, I'm sure some of you are on the call. And as you'll know, surely, at least as well as I, the four plus one concept goes back about a half dozen years. Former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Joseph Dunford, liked to use it. It goes back to sort of the last couple of years of the Obama administration. And then it was essentially retained. It was tweaked a little bit by the Trump administration and Secretary Mattis. But it basically says there are five big threats that our military has to worry about preparing for. Russia and China, North Korea and Iran, and then finally terrorism. And so we say four plus one because the last one is, of course, transnational. It's more diffuse. It's more, you know, amoeba-like. It's uh, throughout much of the broader Middle East and beyond, whereas the other four are classic nation-state dangers. And, and then Secretary Mattis, he said he wanted to focus a little more or prioritize Russia and China. So he took four plus one and he turned it into two plus three. And he put Russia and China on top and then North Korea, Iran, and transnational terrorism below that in, in importance. But he still said, we have to worry about all five. By the way, this was in contrast to the first quarter century of the uh, post-Cold War, when we usually focused on Iraq, North Korea, Afghanistan, as it turned out, smaller so-called rogue states, as President George W. Bush you know, defined the axis of evil, you know, the whole era of after the Berlin Wall fell, we focused on, and after Operation Desert Storm in 1991, Saddam was still in power, the North Koreans were building nuclear weapons. It just seemed to make sense to focus on those kinds of extremist regimes, even though they were smaller powers. But then this century, as we started to wind down our role in the broader Middle East in Iraq and Afghanistan, and as China was becoming more powerful, Russia was becoming more assertive, that's what gave rise to the four plus one. We needed to broaden our scope and our prism on which kinds of threats we needed to prepare for. Well, I think that remains the case today. And those same five threats are all there. We can call it four plus one, two plus three. Uh, I still like four plus one because it set me up to then create this new set of threats. <laughs> and, and, and it's also a, a four plus one set of threats. But I do not claim that it replaces or displaces the old four plus one, the, the old four plus one are still there and they're alive and well. And in fact, in some ways they might become even more dangerous when they are juxtaposed with the new four plus one. So think of it like, you know, an XY matrix and along the X axis are the traditional four plus one threats. Along the Y axis would be biological threats, including pandemic, but also someday perhaps biological weapons, nuclear proliferation dangers, you know, separate from the countries that already have the bomb, the countries that might get it, or that, you know, the international trade in nuclear materials that we want to stymie. Digital dangers, including cyber attack, artificial intelligence, etc. Climate risk. And then finally, our own weakening political fabric here in the United States, where we have less and less cooperation across political divisions. We have a more polarized polity. We saw that certainly in the Trump presidency. Whether you like him or not, it was a polarized time. And I'm not saying it's completely better now. We see that on a lot of debates, you know, 
unlike the days when I first came to Washington in the late 80s and 90s, and, you know, a Senator Sam Nunn, a Democrat from Georgia, could support, you know, the Bush administration on something or, or Senator Bradley from New Jersey or, or Senator Domenici, a Republican from New Mexico, would work with Democrats. You had a lot of people who might have been true to their own beliefs, but they would look for opportunity to cooperate. They actually considered it a virtue to cooperate where you could. But in today's Washington and today's United States, there's much less of that, as we all know. And uh, I really worry that not only does it make life less pleasant, but it also can produce extreme candidates who preach a populism that could lead us to pull back from the world or to overreact to a crisis. And either way, we could really mm -hmm. upset or jeopardize international stability. I'll just say one thing. I'm not going to pretend otherwise that you know, I, am a, I am a critic of President Trump. But it's not so much that his ideology bothers me per se on every single issue, because on some things you can never really tell till later in life if he was Republican or Democrat. But what he's not, he's not a believer in America's alliances. And he frequently disparaged NATO. He frequently disparaged the Koreans. He got along okay with Prime Minister Abe in Japan. So there were a few places where he got, and he got along okay with the Israelis. But for the most part, he didn't really believe in this whole role for the United States that I've been defending tonight by talking about resolute restraint. He didn't really believe in the resolute part, at least rhetorically. Now, the interesting thing about Trump is he hired Secretary Mattis, he hired H.R. McMaster, uh, John Bolton. You know, these are all people who are internationalists. So Donald Trump couldn't really find people to put in his government who believed the same way he did about the world. But what if he wins? in 2024, maybe at that point, he will throw away the constraints and he'll govern the way he really wants to. Or maybe somebody on the left who thinks we've got to simply invest in social programs and domestic economic health, as important as those may be, um, I worry that if we just did that, we would be greatly increasing the chance of, of international conflict by taking away that one backstop to international stability in the form of the American armed forces and strong US presidential and congressional leadership. So those are the things that I worry about with, with the new four plus one. I mean, COVID-19 speaks for itself. Again, biological threats, nuclear proliferation threats, digital dangers, climate dangers, and then our own internal weakening as a group of Americans who can sort of still subscribe to this notion that we do better when we engage with the world, which is something that every president of every party agreed with from 1945 until Trump. But now that consensus would seem to be in some danger. I think Biden supports the, the consensus. And I'm not gonna defend every part of Biden's foreign policy. I think he made a big mistake on Afghanistan and other things I'm concerned about too. But at least he believes in the international approach, the engagement, the alliances. Trump doesn't and future presidents may not either. Well, what roles do the American working and middle classes play with respect to what you call American domestic cohesion? Well, if you're a working class American and you lost your job or you feel like you know, now you're working for half the hourly wage you used to and you're not confident that you're gonna be able to put food on the table for your kids or provide for your health care for your family, or retire comfortably, 
um, you're going to say, oh, Hanlon, I don't really care about your, your fancy dancy Washington theory of global stability. I'm, in, I'm entitled to worry about my own family and my own uh, economic well-being and safety and you know, decent standard of living for my family and my community. And to the extent that Americans don't feel like they have that degree of hopefulness for themselves, for the future, for their families, I don't think we can expect them to support the kind of global trade, the open economic system, the big military budgets, all the things that have undergirded our role since 1945 on the world stage. And so I think they're going to be more attracted to populists, partly because they, they're hurting and they don't really believe that traditional politicians are listening, partly because they're angry and they sort of want to say, you know, you people at the World Affairs Council, you people at the Brookings Institution, you people in Washington, you don't really get it. You don't understand my problems. So I'm going to just take a chance with somebody who sounds different and sounds angry because they're channeling my anger too. And I think that's what we have to worry about if we're not sufficiently responsive. So um, I'll, I'll try to link this to the domestic debate we're having right now, where the Democratic Party is openly divided about whether to go for a you know, $3.5 trillion human infrastructure bill over 10 years or something half that size. And the problem with this debate is we can't have these debates just within one party or the other. We can't have just Republicans deciding the next time they're in the majority, how big the next huge tax cut will be. We can't have Democrats just deciding themselves how big the next package of social benefits will be. We got to compromise. Now, if the Republican caucus decides they're just not going to help Biden no matter what, then he's in a tough place. But they did decide to help him on physical infrastructure. So what I might have suggested is let's, let's get that. Let's pass that. And then let's pass a piece of the human infrastructure that is most relevant to Americans in their current economic situation today. And I might say child tax credit and economic uh, retraining opportunities might be my top two because they speak to the real pocketbook issues for the working class and to the possibility of getting a job once you've lost a previous job. And maybe we need to just sort of lower our sights about the big ambitious packages in the interest of looking for a bipartisanship that can then speak to Americans of both parties and get our politics out of this cycle of anger. So those would be just some humble suggestions. I'm not suggesting that it's easy to find answers to the division we now see in the country, but, but I think uh, Democrats have in the last few months gotten too you know, publicly involved in just debating each other about how much of the taxpayers' money can we spend without focusing in on which benefits do we need most? And if those are really worthy, let's make the case for them. And maybe let's narrow our ambitions a little bit, but do it right. Whatever piece we're gonna add to the social safety network or web or you know, uh, net, let's, let's do it well, let's do it right. Let's try to do it in a bipartisan way and maybe lower our overall ambitions. We've gotten some questions in about Afghanistan. I know your book was written before the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. Could you give us your thoughts about the withdrawal, where we go from here from the U.S.? Do you think that uh, Biden's withdrawal 
uh, without consulting allies in the area, negatively affected the opinion of our allies and that we'll be able to recover from this. So we'd just like your thoughts. So um, again, I'm trying to occasionally be provocative and not just be some long-winded Brookings curly-haired scholar. On the last, so on the last question, <laughs> let me say, I don't really care that much about hurt ally feelings. I have to be honest, because most of our major allies had already pulled their forces out of Afghanistan. The Brits were gone, the French were gone, the Canadians were gone. Yes, the Germans were still there, the Poles were still there, the Italians were still there. A lot of people were still helping. But the notion that somehow Europe has a right to lecture us about how we should have stayed longer in a conflict where we provided about three-fourths of overall NATO capability through most of the effort. I mean, I admire the individual NATO soldiers who fought and risked their lives and in some cases died. More than 200 Brits died in Afghanistan, dozens of Canadians, dozens of French, dozens of Germans. So I don't in any way demean their sacrifice or their bravery, but the notion that somehow Europe as an entity is in a position to lecture us about burden sharing or proper consultation. Yeah, Biden could have handled it better, but I have to say, I don't care that much. However, I do think that after doing too little in Afghanistan in 2002, three, four, five, six, and then trying to do too much too fast in sort of 2009, 10, 11, we had finally settled on a sustainable strategy, which involved about 5,000 US forces. It was less than that by you know, the time Trump left office, but about 5,000, which was already a 95% reduction from peak. And that was enough to more or less stabilize a stalemate. It's true, the Taliban were gaining a little bit incrementally each year, and the stalemate might not have lasted forever, but I would have liked to try a peace process longer. And I think by the time we got down to 5,000 troops, there was no urgency about getting down to zero. So I just think President Biden made a mistake. I know a lot of people on the call will disagree with me, but I'll just complete my own view by saying, you know, if we look at public opinion polls, Americans have said they think Biden was right to leave. He just didn't do it very well. And look at the brouhaha and the melee and the tragedy of August at the uh, airport in Kabul. I would say once you decide to leave, you lose control. And I thought August would be even worse than it was. And I'm actually slightly encouraged that there hasn't been a bloodbath in Afghanistan in the aftermath of our departure. Uh, that to me is a surprise. Now the Taliban governing more or less like old fashioned hardline uh, conservatives, that's not a surprise. But I'm hopeful that we have some leverage over them, both because we can attack them militarily in their current locations, because they've now moved into the government palaces and residences and office buildings in Kabul. And if they start affiliating with Al-Qaeda, we can attack those buildings and we can punish them. We can destroy their government. We can't necessarily stabilize the country. We've tried for 20 years and that didn't go so well, but we can certainly punish them and they know it. They saw how hard we fought for 20 years and they saw how accurate our weapons dropping from the sky and elsewhere can be. So I think we have some leverage to discourage them from affiliating with Al-Qaeda Al -Qaeda and any kind of real operational planning. And I think we can use economic aid or the prospect of economic aid and diplomatic recognition to mitigate and moderate their worst tendencies towards minorities, women, et cetera. 
we're not going to get an Afghanistan that we really like. And my heart breaks for my many Afghan friends who have sort of lost the country that they wanted. But um, from a you know minimalist standard of avoiding atrocities, avoiding blatant punishment of minorities, misogyny, et cetera, I think we can potentially use our leverage with aid and diplomatic recognition to mitigate um, what they might otherwise do. So as unhappy as I was by the withdrawal, I still think we have some levers that give us uh, the ability to probably prevent a worst case from developing inside Afghanistan. Well, before we close, Michael, you make a distinction and you've given many examples of it, but I, I thought it was a very important distinction between a rules-based global order and a liberal global order. Could you explain that? You've given us examples already, but could you explain it and also why that distinction is important? Yeah, thanks, Ray, uh, because it does, it's a good last question because it allows me to reiterate a couple of central theses or points. Defending the rules-based order means countries shouldn't be attacking each other, shouldn't be proliferating nuclear weapons, shouldn't be interfering with the global commons, the sea lanes. And that's sort of a minimum basic standard of the key rules that make the modern world relatively livable and prosperous. A liberal order has two challenges. One, of course, it confuses people what the devil you're talking about. Because in American politics, a liberal means a Democrat who's left of center even for a Democrat. But in international politics, it means anybody who wants to defend human rights and democracy, which means that in American politics, Ronald Reagan might have been a conservative, but internationally, he was a liberal by the definition of that term as used in the you know, world that I live in and the academic world. I think that's too confusing. <laughs> uh, so I want to, you know, I don't feel like we should have words that mean dramatically and radically different things depending on which usage or context we're applying them. And then secondly, uh, the liberal concept of, you know, or let's let's call it the enlightenment concept to, to take my own advice and not use that word in a confusing way. The, the more enlightened view of, and, and the more pro-human rights view of protecting individual rights, democracy, some degree of global sustainability, and, you know, environmental stewardship that's going to keep the planet going long term, the kinds of values that we tend to support as Americans, those are important. But I don't believe in using military power as the main tool to promote them or defend them. So the rules-based order we should defend with our military. The more ambitious and worthy set of principles and goals that we might associate with a more enlightened uh, you know, and more pro-human rights kind of vision for the planet. We should keep promoting those with every other instrument of our foreign policy, but not so much treaty commitments to send our own sons and daughters to die in defense of somebody else's needs. Now, in an extreme case like a Rwanda genocide, if you can do something to stop the slaughter, you, know, you might consider using the military or President uh, George H.W. Bush sending uh, forces to feed Somalis in 1992. There may be exceptions, but for the most part, I'd be careful about using the military to defend the more liberal or to you know, be more clear, the, the more enlightenment vision of what we're trying to achieve in American foreign policy. Thank you, appreciate it very much. Uh, 
Well, I think we have time for a, uh, at least one last question. I, I'm looking at it. Uh, and it's a little different, but I think you do treat it in your book. Article one of the Constitution says that only Congress may declare war, as you know. But then there was the authorization on the use of military force. It was passed in 2001 to deal with 9-11. Well, where are we today? Because a, lot of, a, a large part of the world uh, is not really uh, subject to the authorization, what would be your approach? If you were to give it, have the ability of influencing what our change should be with regard to the ability, who makes war? Well, it's a very good question. And I have no problem when Congress authorizes war, even if we don't call it a declaration of war, that's a little bit, you know, 18th century in some ways. And an authorization to me is in the same ballpark. But mm -hmm. what's not good is when presidents just go off and make war on their own. And, you know, Harry Truman did it in Korea. Barack Obama did it in Libya. They didn't even feel the need to ask for an authorization. And Congress's only recourse was to come back later and try to defund the operation. Now, as you know, there's at least probably three pieces to this. And I know we're already past eight o'clock, but there is the whole War Powers Act after Vietnam, when Congress tried to take some jurisdiction back on this question. There is the specific response to the 9-11 attacks and the AUMF that you just alluded to. And then there's the question of whether presidents could ever launch a nuclear attack without the permission or at least some oversight from Congress. And I think all three of these pieces need to be rethought. But to make this a finite answer and finish up within the next 60 seconds, I would say that on the question that you raised specifically of the so-called 2001 AUMF, I think it would be good to renew that, uh, to constrain it a little bit. However, we need to bear in mind that a future Congress, if there's a time duration that expires on, on any new legislation, Congress may not get its act together in time to renew it when we have American forces deployed abroad in combat. And I never wanna leave those American forces deployed abroad in combat without a legal basis for being protected, being resourced. So I think if you're going to revise the AUMF, let's say that only you know allow for four more years of the war on terror, after which Congress would have to act again, you need a clause in there that says, should Congress fail to act, either affirmatively or negatively, should it fail to act, then the four years renews so that we don't wind up leaving men and women in combat, in harm's way, uh, without the ability to be reinforced or supplied. So that would be my uh, suggestion if we're gonna have that debate. Well, thank, thank you, Michael, you. we appreciate it. Thank, thank you, Thank you, thank you both very much. That was, we really got into it in that conversation and I greatly enjoyed that. So thanks to both of you. Uh, I also, I don't think I'll forget uh, curly haired Washington DC pol foreign policy wonk. I don't know. That's how I'm always going to think about you, Michael. So thanks for that. <laughs> uh, I'd also like to remind all of you, all of our viewers to buy Michael's book, uh, The Art of War in the Age of Peace at Interrobang Books. Our partner use DFW World to get a 10% uh, off discount, discount off 
So uh, you should become a member if, of us. If you are not already, please join us. I'd love to see you and meet you in person at our programs. And remember that the holidays are here, if you can believe it. The holidays are, could be considered to be around the corner. Uh, give the gift of council membership. It's always a great option. Uh, visit our website at DFW World uh, for more information on that. Thanks to everybody. Have a great evening. And Michael, Ray, really appreciate both of you. So thanks for joining us. Good night. Thanks to all of you.